We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. In the summer of 1787, 55 men would gather in Philadelphia. They were tasked with fixing the government of the United States of America. Over the course of four months, they would debate, argue, refine and prepare the first document of its kind in the history of mankind. An attempt to prove that men can rule themselves by law. Over the next three years, the 13 United States would debate the ratification. This is the story of those men and of those times. It is a look at the ideas, the concepts, the debates, and the history of the Constitution of the United States. This is Constitution Thursday. On a hot, middle of August afternoon in 1787, on the banks of the Delaware River, sits a steamship. Yes, a steamship. The delegates will have a wonderful time riding the ship, and perhaps it will influence them as they consider the powers of Congress. They will debate the power of Congress to fight a war, even whether or not the president should be able to commit the nation to make war. In the meantime, the real politic of the slave situation is that the non-slave states have a vested interest in the continuation of the slave trade. This is at odds with the morality of slavery and the principles of the American Revolution. But once again the slave states remind the other states, that without slavery, there will be, no union. As I have said on numerous occasions, one of the things that I dislike tremendously are people who explain to me at great length about how the Constitution was written by uh, white slaveholding misogynists, rich white slaveholding misogynists who uh, hated everybody else, and so they wrote a Constitution for themselves and nobody else. Clearly, those people are delusional, and they have very little practical experience in reading anything about the convention that went on and who these people were. Be that as it may, I think one of the other things that interests me uh, that has come to my uh, list of things that, I don't want to call it annoyances, but things that cause me concern, uh, the people who say, well, we want to get back to the framers. We want to get back to the visions of the framers. We want to get uh, we, somewhat shortened as we want our country back. But, but oftentimes we talk about we want to get back to the, to the original meanings of things. And what, do we, what we come to find out in studying the convention and studying these men is that there's no homogenous belief system. There are, there are allies. There are people who agree with one another. But there are very little agreement across the entire board. There are very few things that everybody actually agrees on. That's kind of somewhat misleading. And, and when we talk about the originality of the Constitution, what we've learned so far is that what eventually what wins, uh, what the Constitution we get, for the most part, comes from Rutledge's vision who is a Southerner, who is a slaveholding state representative. And indeed, much of the Constitution does benefit 
the slave states. But it's almost in a over-the-barrel kind of attitude. You either give us what we want, or you're not going to get your union. Whereas the, the compromisers tend to take the approach of, we're not going to solve any of these problems if we don't have a union. And if we don't have a union, well, then what do we fight this revolutionary war for? And moreover, how do we go forward? Are we going to have to invade South Carolina and subjugate it and make it come along kicking and screaming? Or do we want something different than that? These seem like outrageous things to us. I mean, we look at it today and go, well, that would have never happened. But in mid-August of 1787, that wasn't quite the thought process. In fact, even up to this point of the convention, and we're, you know, basically a month out from being done with this, the South, the slave states, and sometimes I refer to them as the South, which is kind of a misnomer. They didn't think of themselves that way. The, the, the slave states are still actively pushing for a weaker central government that will have no effect on slavery at all. And they continue to push the non-slave states and what are called the middle states and Virginia, which almost has its own separate existence, to accede to their wishes or else. They'll just go their own separate ways. It's not quite as intense as it was several weeks ago. Now it's more, rather than insults and yelling now, it's become more subtle. With Rutledge's draft, they're able to go through some things and they're, they're going to get into all of that here in just a little bit. However, I, we've spent so much time talking about the slavery issue and how much impact it has. We've kind of neglected some of the other things. And, and again, this is not a minute-by-minute, blow-by-blow account of the convention. If you want that, they're available. Uh, Madison's book, uh, uh, the, the Constitutional Convention and Narrative History is free. And it's, a, it's, you know, I mean, you can download it and it's Madison's notes and it's almost verbatim of, of each debate. What it, was, what it doesn't give you in, in that book is a lot of the background and some of the things that went on uh, outside of the convention. But the other thing that has come to intrigue me is that as we learn Sometimes it changes our position. It has to. The more knowledge we have, the more we have to carefully consider our opinions about things. Some weeks ago, back in February, I believe, we did a show, a Constitution Thursday show, called War for, War for Constitutional Purposes. And we talked about the War Powers Act and how that was shifting and how some considerations in there. And one of the things I believe I said in that, and I know that I've said before, is the War Powers Resolution, not the War Powers Act, sorry, the War Powers Resolution of 1973 is of dubious constitutionality. Uh, I asked this question on Facebook, and I got the standard responses. Look, Congress's job to declare war. So QED, Congress passing a law saying, no, it's the president's job to take us to war, and he has to report to us within 60 days, seems to fly in the face of what the Constitution actually says, which is that Congress shall have the power to declare war. But like most things... As we begin to delve into them and we begin to learn, we discover that things aren't always quite what we think they are, are they? Because you see, the framers of the Constitution were, many of them were lawyers, many of them were very educated people, and many of them understood the subtlety of language. In fact, we're going to get into that a little bit later uh, in, the, in the show today where we start talking about, well, what do we actually call slaves? 
because we're going to come up with a name for that, that that isn't slaves. When it comes to the power of war, there is, of course, great concern. They have come out of the English uh, nation, the English tradition, where the king declares the war and then expects parliament to raise the money to pay for it. This, of course, is seen as unacceptable. This is seen as problematic. And if you go back in your English history, to even to the 1600s, this has always been a rubbing point between parliament and the king. And the fact that parliament isn't always willing to pay for it. And the king then takes actions that perhaps uh, anger parliament or perhaps please parliament. Who knows? But in recent years, particularly under King George III, uh, there has come to be a thing, it started long before that, but, but by the time of King George III, the king has become so massively wealthy that he is literally able to buy politicians. He is literally able to buy boroughs. They're called rotten boroughs. And I don't want to spend a lot of time on English politics, but he's literally able to decide who the represent, who the minister of parliament, who the member of parliament will be from that borough. And they're loyal to him because he's paid for them and, and continues to bribe them. And, and, and even part of the Revolutionary War elements of it, there was a great deal of the king stacking parliament against the idea of just letting the American colonies go. They've watched this happen. The, the framers have watched this happen in the past, and they are just dead set against the idea, for the most part, of doing it that way. And so... The original draft of the con Constitution, Pickney's original draft, reads one of the enumerated powers of Congress is to make war. Now, just let that rattle around and settle in your brain for just a moment. The original draft did not say to declare war. It said to make war. The president, with the advice and consent of the Senate, would hold the power to make treaties, including the treaties of peace, thus ending said war that Congress has decided to make. Now, if you consider the subtlety of language, you know that there is a huge difference between making war and declaring war. I don't have to point out to you, or perhaps I do. I, I don't know maybe what you're familiar with. Um, from 1950 to 1953, actually to right down to today, in fact, the two, uh, the two nations were throwing artillery at each other yesterday, the Korean War has been going on and did go on, and the United States was involved directly from 1950 to 1953. No war was ever declared. However, it would be hard to argue that we weren't making war in Korea. Same thing in Vietnam. We clearly made war in Vietnam, but we did not declare war. In the first Gulf War, we made war, but we did not declare war. In the second Gulf War, we, declared, we didn't declare war, but we made war. We have ongoing conflicts where we continue to make war, but we did not declare war. Now, this seems pedantic. I get it. But in the world of language and in the world of subtlety and in the world of understanding what the framers' mindsets were, it matters. You may be saying to yourself, what's the difference? Well, the difference is, very simply, one of expediency. To make war was opposed by, me, uh, by Mr. Pickney of South Carolina, as we've talked about. He opposed the vesting of this power in the legislature, in Congress. He did not want Congress to have the power to make war. Why, you may be asking? Well, its proceedings were too slow. 
The Congress met in those days, but once per year. The House is too big. The Senate, <laughs> well, if we're going to have Congress involved with that, then the Senate should be handling it because they're familiar with foreign affairs via treaties that they've, that they've considered for uh, advice and consent. Uh, if the states are equally represented in the Senate, equal representation important, of course, to the Southerners, but uh, the principle, and Mr. Pickney is really throwing this principle back at them, if, if you recall last week, Governor Morris's argument that the North could be forced to go to war for the South and their slaves. Well, now he's literally throwing that argument right back at them. What if, what if, what if we decide, the Congress decides, the Senate decides to go to war, the House, the Congress decides to go to war against Canada? Well, the northern states are probably going to support that, but why should the southern states? But with equal representation, it's less likely that an overwhelming number uh, could be able to do that. The power will notwithstanding be safe as long as the small have all at stake in such cases as well as the large states. It would be curious for one authority to make war and another to make peace. So you'd have Congress making war and the president negotiating the peace treaties. Well, what happens if Congress and the president don't agree? What happens if uh, Congress, I don't know, wants to invade, I don't know, pick a place, Mexico, and the president thinks that's a bad idea? Butler said the objections against the legislature lie in great deal against the Senate. He was for vesting power in the president solely in the power of the president to make war because the president will have all the requisite qualities and will not make war except when a nation, when the nation will support it. Now consider that for just a moment. Today we operate under what's known as the War Powers Resolution in which Congress essentially delegates to the president the decision making of whether or not we will go to war. We saw some time ago, it's been a couple of years now, we saw a situation where the President of the United States made it clear that he wanted to go to war. And the nation was very skeptical of that. The nation, as expressed through our elected representatives in Congress, was very skeptical of that. You, you had a hard time finding anybody that thought that that was a good idea. The President continued to stick to his guns. Nope, we're going to do this, we're going to do this, we're going to do this. And the opposition became more and more vocal. And eventually, because the nation did not support the idea of going to war in Syria, although subsequently you could argue we have, the, the expected combat, the expected making of war at that point did not occur. It just intrigues me because here, 227 years before all of this, Mr. Butler says the president will have all the requisite qualities and will not make war, but when the nation will support it. it. That phrase intrigues me because, again, the president wanted to do this. He made it very clear that he wanted to do it. But he was restrained by the nation not supporting it. At this point, Eldridge, Jerry, Madison want to change the verbiage. All right. Let's change it from make war to declare war. See, de declaring a state of war exists is a different thing. It is not making war. You can declare that a war exists and not fire a shot. In, in essence, the situation in Korea to some degree, although we never declared war there, but you could literally declare a war on some nation and never drop a bomb one. Never fire one bullet. You could do that. And Congress, therefore, has that power to declare that a state of war exists. 
Now, under that state of war existing, certain things change legislatively, believe it or not. The implication here and the understanding is that at that point, you can get what's called a War Powers Act. We passed one in 1941, uh, less than two weeks after Pearl Harbor was attacked, which expanded executive authority, gave him the authority, President Roosevelt, the authority to do the things that would need would be needed ex expeditiously to prosecute the Second World War. But Congress did not make war. Congress did not decide, yeah, we're going to bomb Japan or we're going we're to fire at Germany. We didn't do any of those things. Now, you can make the argument, well, they did it to us. So, but Germany didn't. So, you see what I'm saying here? There's a, there's a difference between these words, and I find it intriguing that all those years ago, they, they didn't like the idea of making war, Congress deciding to make war. In other words, Congress, much like Parliament under Cromwell, just deciding to go off and invade people. They wanted the president to have that ability legislatively through Congress declaring the situation that's there. So they changed it to declare war. Mr. Sherman thought, that's brilliant. The executive should be able to repel any war. Anytime we're attacked, the executive, the president, that's his job to stop that conflict, to, 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 to repel that invasion. And he should. But he should not be able to just go off and you know decide to, you know, let's, let's go bomb France or Mexico or <coughs> Panama, Colombia, as the case may be. Make was much better than declare, the latter narrowing the point, too, too much. Jerry never expected to hear in a republic a motion to empower the executive alone to declare war. I never thought I would ever hear in my lifetime here in the United States of America, a republic, the idea that we would empower one man to make war. There's a material differences between, and this, this is where I get to what I'm saying. Mr. Ellsworth said, there's a material difference between the cases of making war and declaring war, as well as making war and making peace. It should be more easy to get out of war than into it. War is also simple. It's an overt declaration. It's just Peace, however, is far more complicated. It comes with intricate and secret negotiations. And that's true. Mason, George Mason of Virginia, was against the idea of giving the power of war to the executive because he was not safely to be trusted with it, or to the Senate, because not so constructed as to be entitled to it. He was for clogging the process of going to war, but not for facilitating peace. And he preferred declare to make. On the motion of the, uh, to, to insert declare instead of make, it was agreed. Pennsylvania, Delaware, Maryland, Virginia, North Carolina, South Carolina, Georgia voted aye. New Hampshire, Connecticut voted no, Massachusetts abstained. And when we think about this in terms of today, we see that even though we're, st we're still having the same argument about how does, this how does this nation go to war? Is it necessary to declare war, to make war? If the executive feels that a clear and present danger exists to the national security of the United States, does that not meet the definition of repelling a, an armed attack? And therefore, everyone in the, in the convention understood that the president, that was what he was supposed to do. In seen in that light, does the War Powers Act change a little bit? In other words, do we see it quite as clear-cut unconstitutional 
as say Richard Nixon did or say we all did 20 minutes ago. These are the kinds of discussions that they had and we continue to have even today. It's Plausibly Live. It's Constitution Thursday. It's the official podcast of the Dave Bowman Show. I'm Jeff. I'm Pat. Next time on Lawless Chat, we explore the world of civil seizures. What's the history? Why is it legal? A few cases where things went bad. And what the government says it's doing and why it's doing it. Next time on Lawless Chat. Right here on the Podcast 99 Network. They still haven't built a circuit that could hold him. The Eric Wallace Podcast. This is the Scotsman. And this is Drew. And we are the Ale Evangelist Show, spreading the good news of good booze across the land. Wine is nice, but beer is better. It is indeed. So tune in to us on the Podcast 99 Network, where California comes to talk, www.podcast99.com. Hi there, I'm Christine Papworth. And I'm Wendy Papworth-Bates. And we're your real estate doctors. Listen to House Calls with the Real Estate Doctors on therealestatedoctors.net and podcast99.com. Hi, this is Pat from Lawless Chat. Are you a small business person looking for that perfect location in Modesto? Having the perfect space is a key to growing and being successful. 2020 Standiford has good access to Highway 99 and all of Modesto. It's the perfect location for reaching the city of Modesto and all of the great Central Valley. Mike Royer, property manager, wants to show you a spectacular 1,482 square foot office location on Standiford Avenue that's available now. It's the perfect location for developing a dynamic business here in the Central Valley. Want to know more? Call Mike today at 996-6396. That's 996-6396. Tell him Pat from Lawless Chat sent you. For the powdered wigs and knickers inside all of us, you're listening to Constitution Thursday. There were, as you can guess, a a whole lot of other arguments and debates and discussions that were held during this time period where they're really looking at and refining Rutledge's draft, and they're really dealing with these things, but they're making a lot of progress, and this this is where it really starts to get exciting, and yet at the same time, it becomes a little bit concerning because, again, we have this... 2020 hindsight. We look back at what happened and we're impressed. Man, those guys were great. At the time, however, they were very concerned that they were going to make this through. I can't overemphasize that to you enough, that there was no certainty that this was going to happen. It's, it's kind of like World War II. We look at it with a certain inevitability. The Allies were always going to win that war, but that was not clear to the folks who were there. Even in mid-1945, it wasn't clear. I mean, they knew they were going to win eventually, but it wasn't clear that they were going to do so quite so decisively. They didn't know that. And so for us to use our hindsight is somewhat misleading, and it causes us to misunderstand some things. The slave states are going to continue. They will continue to try to press their advantage if you take nothing else from these lessons, from, from this convention section especially, please understand 
Politics has not changed in this country in 200 plus years. It really hasn't. It's all about getting the advantage for your area. And the slave states made a great deal of hay at the Constitutional Convention and won a lot of points forcing the non-slave states to accede to their wishes in order to gain what they overall wanted, which was union. Again, there was no way these problems were going to be solved without union. It just wasn't going to happen. But that doesn't excuse to a lesser degree what Washington called demagoguing of the convention by trying to turn it into, hey, just give us everything or we're going to take our ball and go home, which in many ways is what the small states did at first to get equal representation in the Senate and what the slave states will do later on to try to preserve the institution of slavery, which is universally reviled. It's just intriguing to me to watch the Virginians at this point because the Virginians and to a lesser degree some Pennsylvanians are and, and one Delawarean, John Dickinson, are just having emotional meltdowns themselves over this because they know that slavery is evil. They know that it does not represent the principles of America and the revolution. They know that it has to stop but they also don't want to give up their slaves. And they just have no clue what to do. They just do not know. All the way back during the, uh, during the writing of the Declaration of Independence, remember that Thomas Jefferson's original draft blamed King George for the slave trade. And, and I think it's one of the more interesting scenes in the, uh, the, the HBO series John Adams where Adams, Franklin, and Jefferson are sitting in that room and they're going over the, the draft of the Declaration of Independence to try to you know, smooth it out a little bit. And, and Jefferson, to his credit, is not offended by this, but they, they strike that clause because they just feel like, eh, that's, yeah, you're not good. No, that's, that's not going to work. And Jefferson's response to that is, I, I know it's evil. I wish there was a way to stop it, but I, but I don't know how to do it. Thomas Jefferson's one of the smartest people that ever lived. If he doesn't know how to stop it, don't tell me that you could go back to 1787 and stop it. Because you couldn't, not under these circumstances and not under these conditions. But this debate will continue, and it will get testy, and it will get argumentative, and it will test people's morals, but not quite the way you hoped that it would. In the meantime, however, there's a big rainstorm. Philadelphia, in the summertime, it's a very hot, muggy, just downpour kind of rainstorm. You know the kind of storm I'm talking about. But it seems to intensify the debates and the debates, but at least they're moving forward. And that's the thing you need to keep in mind. This, this thing is moving. It's going places. They're forming committees to solve problems. And they're getting solutions to things. Okay, let's work on that. Let's work on this. Let's move to that. Should we make war or declare war? All these things are happening. But they need a little break. And so, oddly enough, almost all the convention members, with one really stellar example, take an afternoon and they go down to the Delaware River. Now, I want you to understand that. Some of, some of you are savvy enough to know that when I say that in 1787, that's right, 1787, um, 20 years before you'll hear the name Robert Fulton, the convention that writes our Constitution takes kind of an afternoon, evening off, and they go down to the banks of the Delaware River to observe the operation of a steamship. The Perseverance. It's 
built by a guy by the name of Fitch. He was with John Fitch. He's from Connecticut. And he just wants to show this thing off because obviously he wants investors. And these men, these 55 men, more or less, are some of the brightest minds in all of the world, including Benjamin Franklin. Franklin goes down, and, and, and one of the things Fitch does is he says, you know, hey, anybody want to ride? You can get on my boat, the Perseverance. I'll take you across the river, the Delaware River, at four knots. <laughs> Sorry, four miles per hour. Uh, Steamships, paddle boats work in miles per hour. i got to keep that in my mind. He can get up to four, four miles per hour on this thing, which, again, you're not using oars and you're not using sails, and so people are very impressed by this. The delegates are amazed, and almost to a man... They jump at the chance to ride across the river on this thing. Can you imagine that? 20 years before you ever heard of a steamship, the Claremont and Robert Fulton, the delegates of the convention who are about to consider whether or not one of the powers of Congress should be to encourage the sciences in its nation and to preserve patents for those kinds of things, take a ride on a steamboat across the Delaware River and back. Fitch actually starts a company. He actually runs like a ferry system between uh, across the river there between Philadelphia and Trenton, but it never really catches on. And of course, he goes broke and ends up uh, doing away with the thing because it just doesn't seem commercially viable. Oddly enough, the two the two convention members who are really not interested in this thing, George Washington doesn't even show up. He just doesn't even bother. And people kind of think to themselves, well, I wouldn't want one. Is he just like against technology? Is he against science? What's, what's the problem? Well, it turns out George Washington had a friend who was also working on the same idea. And he didn't want to, he, he didn't want to support someone else over his friend. Much, you know, people do that today. They, they choose who they're going to go with. They choose their brand loyalty and they go with that. And Washington did that. It wasn't whether he thought it would work or not. Obviously, he thought it would. But his friend uh, had basically the same idea, was working on the same kind of engine. And so Washington didn't go. And, of course, ultimately, his friends didn't work out either. It, was, it would be literally another two, 20 years uh, before Robert Fulton would demonstrate a commercially viable uh, steam engine running a paddle boat across a river. The other one that didn't go, and I find this fascinating, didn't take a ride, was Dr. Franklin. Now, you might say, oh, Franklin didn't go because he was old. He didn't want to get on a boat out in the middle of the Delaware River. Um, and there's probably something to that. But reality is, Franklin, who did leave some notes about this, did not like the paddle wheel element of the steam engine. He thought that that was a waste of uh, potential energy. He thought it was a bad design. He actually favored a form of jet propulsion using the steam engine to drive a, like a jet engine to drive the steamship as, as opposed to the paddle wheel. And so he just sort of poo-pooed it and said, eh, it's not going to work. It's not, uh, it's, not, it's not a good design. And so he didn't, he didn't go. It, it, it's just, it, 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 to me, it's amazing to think the idea of all of these guys uh, riding on this steamboat back and forth. Most of the delegates attended the demonstration, but not uh, the general, as I said. And the uh, Governor Randolph, several of the Virginia members were pleased to give it any countenance they could. And in 1790, like I said, he was running regular boats between Philadelphia and Trenton, but he finally shut it down because it didn't make any money. Again, 
these are just little vignettes that when you see in the big picture, this, this fascinating piece of technology, but keep in mind, literally within days, these same men are going to consider the powers of Congress. And one of those powers is going to be to encourage science and technology, to, to, to promote those things as best they can by securing patents. And you have to wonder how much influence Fitch, John Fitch's steamboat on the banks of the Delaware River on an August afternoon in 1787 had on the development of sciences and technologies and the congressional willingness to promote those things throughout the rest of our history. Could it be that it started there with a simple four-mile-an-hour paddle boat that Benjamin Franklin thought was eh, and George Washington preferred his other guy? The Virginians loved it. I like to think that it did. And that's why, you know, perhaps John Fitch deserves a little bit more credit in our history and a little bit more, I don't know, a little bit more gravitas for perhaps having helped the convention see the importance of science and technology right down to today as we think about going to Mars. Pretty impressive, huh? It's Constitution Thursday, plausibly live. Otto von Bismarck was the Prime Minister of Prussia and eventually what would become known as Imperial Germany. His, he was known as the Iron Prime Minister. He was the man who essentially forged what we think of as the modern nation of Germany. Germany up to that point had been a whole bunch of little nation states dominated by Prussia, but eventually they formed themselves into a union of, of one nation known as Germany. They crowned their, their Kaiser, their king, Wilhelm I, but it was Bismarck who was really the power of Germany in the late 1800s and even into the early 1900s prior to the First World War. What, what Bismarck is most remembered for, however, at least in a more common sense, is his concept of the real politik. Now, you may have heard this phrase before, the real politik, and it's, it's one of those things where it's, it's just sort of, it's bounced around politics today even. A good example of this would be uh, within the Republican Party. Oftentimes you hear uh, so-and-so isn't electable. You have to be real about these things. Uh, the real politic, in other words, is what Bismarck would be saying. Sometimes you have to concede that your enemies have a point. The real politic, as it were. And sometimes you have to accept that in order to get what you want, the, the biggest thing you want, you're going to have to accept that there are situations where you can't really change them. The real politic of the situation is beyond your control, and you simply have to accept what has happened. Oddly enough, I, I, love, the I, I love the baseball movie, movie uh, Mr. Baseball, with Tom Selleck, and there's a scene in there where the girl, the love interest, tells him, you just have to accept certain things. And in, in some ways, the real politic is that way. When it comes to the convention, the issue of slavery just 
will not go away. The idea that Rutledge has presented is that the importation of slaves is to be tax-free. In other words, we bring everybody in and, you know, we're not going to tax them. There's this three-fifths thing going on. Oh, and by the way, no navigation laws, to no excise taxes. Uh, we want it both ways. And the convention, as we talked about last week, really explodes over this. Governor Morris's speech still moves me. It really does. And it still stands as one of the most incredible moments of speaking truth to power, even though it was a losing effort. But even in that losing effort, Governor Morris, what he accomplishes with that speech last week is that he actually begins to get the anti-slave folks, the northern folks, to really think about, all right, what are we going to do here? The southerners, however, had a problem. And that problem was Luther Martin, who, for some reason, uh, left. Went to New York City for a couple weeks, came back. When he came back, it was as if Luther Martin, who was a Marylander, remember, Southerner, considered a slave stater, was, and a small stater, suddenly Luther Martin, whose primary purpose in life was to annoy people, suddenly was just absolutely obsessed with ending the slave trade. He said trafficking in humans was inconsistent with the principles of the revolution and it was dishonorable to the American character. That's the quote we have from Madison. I imagine it took Luther Martin probably four or five minutes to say that and it smelled really bad. Rutledge came unglued. He, he, he started basically screaming, but he, he did something that you need to keep in mind. Whereas Luther Martin was trying to bring up the morality of slavery, Rutledge avoided that entirely. And he talked about the politics of slavery and the politics of hard money. Religion and humanity have nothing to do with this question, he said. Religion has nothing to do with it. Interest alone is the governing principle with nations. This true question at present is whether or not the southern states shall or shall not be parties to the union. If the northern states shall consult their interests, they will not oppose the increase of slaves, which will increase the commodities of which they will then become the carriers. Do you, do you see what Rutledge has done? He's driven the entire debate away from whether or not all men are created equal, and we hold this truth to be self-evident, into how much money do you want? If you want us in this union, if you want South Carolina in this union, you're going to have to accept slavery and you're going to have to accept the importation of slavery. If you do, you're going to make some money on the side. The interesting thing about here is that uh, people began to kind of get Connecticut. Oliver Ellsworth said, yeah, you're right. Morality of wisdom of slavery are considerations belonging to the states themselves. The national government shouldn't be involved with this. And Charles Pickney the other Pickney, agreed that South Carolina would never join a nation that banned the slave trade. If left at liberty on this subject, he added, the state might ban trade on its own, but we're never going to do it if your government forces us to, which is absolutely interesting because do you know what's going on even as these guys are talking about this in South Carolina? <laughs> this is amazing. South Carolina has found itself in a situation where after the American Revolutionary War, the... The, uh, the economy of South Carolina has lost most of its slaves. It, it's hard to believe, but they, they really have lost many, if not most, of their slaves. 
And in order to replenish their stock, as the historians have written, the landowners have really gotten themselves into hock with the merchants. They've, they've just borrowed money left and right. Well, they've replenished their stock, but the indigo market collapses. World market for indigo, the, the main product that they're growing at that time, just, just collapses. Now all of a sudden they're stuck with all these slaves, all these loans to pay for these slaves, and the, the, the planters start going broke. And they take the merchants down with them. And do you know what South Carolina's legislative response to this is? Well, we've got too many slaves. We need to stop the importation of slaves. And so they, the state of California, oh, sorry, California, South Carolina, literally bans the importation of slaves for two years. For two years, they say, mm, no, no, no more importing of slaves. Because it's economic. It's the real politic is economics not morality. And yet, even as they're doing that, even as they're banning slaves in Philadelphia, the representatives of South Carolina are arguing against congressional action to do the same thing. Nope, Congress shall have no power to do this. And if they do, we will not be part of your union. We might do it on ourselves if it benefits us. But if it doesn't benefit us, then no, we're not going to do it. It's intriguing and it's fascinating to watch. Because the entire argument, despite Governor Morris's attempt to turn it to morality, despite the attempt of Luther Martin, of all people, to turn it to a moral argument, the slave states turn it back into an economic argument. It's the economy, stupid. It's the real politic of the situation. And they turn it back on the northern states with, if you want union with us, you're going to make a lot of money. But we need our slaves for you to do that. And oddly enough, the North accedes to this. They understand it. But they draw a line in the sand. They, they disapprove of the slave trade, but they deny the public good requires its end. They predict that the good sense of the states will lead them to abolish slavery on their own. In fact, Ellsworth... <laughs> says that if you look into the future, slavery will not be a speck in our country. Completely misunderstanding human nature, he predicts that fear of slave insurrections will actually cause the owners to treat their slaves kindly. That's what they'll do. But instead, there's this still this gurgling feeling of, yeah, this is it's not going to work. And so, in one of the rare cases where the South really doesn't get its way. The convention decides two things. One, you can have your importation of slaves. Oop, wait, let's not call them slaves. Let's call them such persons as shall be brought into the country. That's what we'll call We're not going to call them slaves. Such persons. You can have that, but you're going to pay $10, up to $10 per head, as you do that, an import tax. And oh, by the way, we're going to reserve the right for Congress to take action after a certain point. When will that point be? Becomes something of a debate, but they finally settle on 1808, as you're kind of aware. It's just an example of the way the real politic begins to drive what's going to happen here. 
They want union. They have to have union. If we, we all hang together or we hang separately, applies here just as much as it did in 1776. And now they are beginning to see this and they are beginning to accept it. Is it the right way to do it? Perhaps not. But there was no other way to do it in 1787. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.